Did you guys enjoy hearing from Jim and Alma last week? Or is it just me? Because I love hearing those stories. Some of them I've heard. But when you go down there to El Salvador, it like, when you meet those people, it's so different than it is here. Because here, like, you almost have to pay people to show up for services. And down there, they have service every night and twice on Sundays or something. I yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's the central part. And there was a time that it was like that here because it was the gathering of the saints. It's the time of prayer, and they're getting into the Word. And it was like the most adorable thing because there was this little kid, and you guys probably remember this. We prayed for this young man. Of course, Jim and I speak zero English. If there is not a translator there, we have no idea what he's telling us. But the kid was so grateful that he ran home and either fried the plantains or they had them back and brought, he just wanted to give something to say thank you. And well, I mean, he couldn't have been 10 years old. He was, he was pretty young. Very little. I mean, just, you know, it's just a special place. So, you know, I, I would encourage you to ask them lots of questions about what goes on down. It's so cool. And uh, hopefully eventually we get an opportunity to go back down and take some of us with it. Because I'm telling you, it's just, it's a special place. And, and what I love the most, and this kind of goes with what we've been talking about. I'm going to tell you guys a story here in a moment. Is like seeing Victor. Because that's something that you can quantify like you can put on there and say this is what when they bring him into the service in a wheelbarrow okay now I've, I've been in a lot of services in my life I've never seen that happen okay but brought him in, in a wheelbarrow and Jim prays for him and, and immediately I mean the man comes out of it I mean you guys know the story but to see what he's doing now it was transformation it's the power of the Holy Spirit and it's the authority of the believer which is what we're talking about we've been in this series identity crisis and, you know, I've been kind of sharing stories, and you've had some other share stories. Well, let me give you another one that just, I had a friend of mine I was talking to the other day. He's a pastor. And uh, many, many years ago, he got invited to go and speak somewhere. And he got, you know, they asked if they could stay in the home with one of these people in the church. And they said, there's just some activity that goes on in this house. And he didn't face him. And he said, this is the closest that he's ever been to something like this. But he said, there was something that was always upstairs. They tell him after he's committed, Right. They didn't bring this up. You know, it's kind of like the first time we went to El Salvador, um, we were, you know, you just get in the car and you go because you don't know what they're saying. They just drive you around. And uh, what we found out after we pull up to this house is this is the leader of the MS-13 gang. We're going to his house. We didn't take a vote. <laughs> didn't feel like dying today, right? He was a super nice guy, actually. But, uh, but regardless, you know, it was one of those things. So he's already committed to this. And they've been ministering at the church and been praying for people and stuff like that. And... Um, he could tell there was something that had been tormenting this family that was going on. There was tension amongst the family. And I don't want to always say, like, oh, that's the demon or something. Like, like don't, don't misunderstand me. But there are times, and the longer that you do this, you begin to discern some of these different things, is that there are times that that is what is going on. And he could certainly tell that something was going on. So he's just praying about how to handle it. And anyway, one night, he was getting ready to go upstairs because his room was upstairs. He walked up the stairs and literally felt something try to shove him down the stairs. Okay? Nobody's around. Now, I know this guy. He's a good friend of mine. Okay? And he's a lot of things, but he wouldn't make this up. Again, if he was writing this in a book trying to sell it to you, I'd probably question it a little bit more. But he's just telling me. This is the first time I've ever heard him. I've known the guy for 20 years. And uh, he's like, you know, it caught him off guard. He wasn't prepared for that. And he walked on by, and then he felt something again. And he just turned around, and he just rebuked and said, you have got to leave this house right now. Now, he's the only one upstairs. Everybody's downstairs. He said, immediately, 
it was like a temperature change in the house. Now, it wasn't a physical, like, oh, it got warmer or colder or whatever. He said it was like something just shifted in that moment. Didn't think much of it. He went to bed because he was at peace with it. He didn't know what was going on. The next morning, he comes downstairs. The whole family is sitting around the table crying because they had reconciled all the issues that morning. That's powerful. It's very powerful. Why do I tell you guys this stuff? I want you to understand that the spiritual world is very real. We often discount it. We often cast it aside. We don't think about it. There are some people that go in the other ditch and everything's a demon. If your car doesn't start, it's the devil. You had a flat tire, it was the devil. If you didn't get a tax refund, it's the devil. The truth is, it was the devil that took the taxes in the first place. That's a whole other story. Okay? We're not getting into that ditch. This is where we talk about discernment. And we've got to understand this in, in, in getting into it. So here we go. We're going to start. You guys know where we're going? No, you don't, actually. Go to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. I'm going to mix it up on you a little bit. It says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same suffering is experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Now, here's what's going on. Let's talk about Peter. What is the first thing he says? Who is walking around? Your adversary, the enemy, whatever that is. This is a spiritual thing. These are not people that you're going up against. This is a spiritual thing that's going around. And he's looking for people to devour. Does he say believers? No. We assume that, but doesn't necessarily say that. Because for me personally, much of the demonic activity that I have been around usually comes from the unbelieving side, most of the time. It can't happen on the believing side. A lot of it has to do with this next part. Resist him steadfast in the faith. They didn't do that. Whose responsibility is that? It's ours. So here it is that he says the enemy's walking around. He's looking for people to devour. But you, believer, resist him. Steadfast in the faith. What does that mean? Because we think we know what it means. If you were here last Sunday with our first foundations class, you begin to realize that while you have a belief system, to be able to verbalize what it is you believe and why you believe it is not so easy because we never get questioned these things. But when it says steadfast in the faith, what does that mean? Well, the word steadfast means to be steady, consistent, unwavering, unmoved, constantly the same, steadfast. We like things steadfast, right? We don't like it when the sewer back is up. That's not steadfast. That's bad. You come home, your basement's full of poo, nobody likes it. It's unsteadfast. We like the same thing. We like to flush, and down it goes. Never comes back again, right? Can I get an amen? I just had this conversation with somebody yesterday, so I'm bringing this up, okay? It's happened to them, all right? But we, to be steadfast in the faith, have to determine, well, what is the faith? Because when we hear the word faith, we just think, oh, you know, you just got to believe something with no evidence. Believe, you know, no matter what's going on around you. That's not really what faith means. Faith means trust. Faith in Christ means trust in Christ, what he said and what he has done. So therefore, if we're talking about being steadfast, unwavered, and our trust in what Christ has said and has done. That's simply what it means, putting it very, very generically. So if the enemy is coming like a roaring lion, how do we overcome that? We resist him by staying steadfast in the faith. In other words, don't get tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. 
Don't get knocked off kilter as the circumstances that happen. No matter what it is, is it, does he put anything here that says, well, unless it's this, then it's okay. No, he doesn't put anything like that. He just says to do this. So in other words, the adversary of the devil, who's the adversary of all mankind, doesn't like any of us, especially hate believers, he's going around looking for whom he may devour. That could be you unless you resist him by being steadfast in the faith. Whose responsibility is it? So the difference between a believer and an unbeliever is simply this. You have the ability and responsibility to do something about it. So whose fault is it if you fall victim to this? It is yours. Always yours. Because God has given us the ability to stand no matter what. It's our responsibility to actually do it. When Paul says, put on the whole armor of God, he didn't say, you know, that armor that you were born with. He says, put it on, which implies you weren't born with it. It also implies you might be able to take it off. Maybe we just stop doing that. Then we go to Romans chapter 8. You notice I mix these around a little bit. There's a reason for that today. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is an enmity against God, it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, as we've talked about, we often think carnal and spiritual moral and immoral but that's not really what it's talking about here necessarily in this carnal minded state is to be thinking contrary to the faith and to be spiritually minded is to be steadfast in the faith in other words what jesus has said what jesus has provided what jesus has done is what we need and if we simply do that we'd be fine okay now let me ask you a question I like to put this in terms that we can all understand. Is if you have kids, would your kids' lives not be better if they would simply do what you tell them to do when you tell them to do it and not question everything that you have said? Would it not be better for them? So you're not really trying to take away their fun when you say, the stove is hot, don't touch. And what do they want to do? They want to prove you wrong. And as you grow older, you begin to realize, I have nothing to prove. I was talking to Mike about roofing. There was a time I roofed when I was in high school. And you know what I used to do? I'd put two bundles on each arm and I'd carry them up the ladder. Mike would have loved to have had me. They didn't have ladder vaders then. And I'd get them up there and I'd pop them down there. And I'd go back down and I'd do it again. Right? Could I do that today? I don't know. We're not going to find out. Uh, no, we hire Mike. That's what we do. We watch Mike do it. <laughs> it wouldn't last very long, but <laughs> I mean, but, but there's the thing. Like, even if I could, I have no desire to find out if I can. I don't want to prove it. And, and that's the thing is, is when we talk about this, it's like God has provided for us certain things that we do and avoid doing for our benefit. But what do we do? Like, well, God, I know this is what you said, but let me explain to you what you meant, right? Essentially, we are the bride of Christ in that circumstance. Because when a man says something, the wife is always quick to interpret it for him, of what he meant by that. <laughs> Steve's going to need a ride home, folks. <laughs> <laughs> and a place to stay, y'all. He's going to need it. This is, this is going off the rails quickly. So to be carnally minded is mean you're thinking outside of what God has said. 
To be spiritually minded is you know, thinking like he has said. And if you are in the flesh, it is absolutely impossible for you in any way to please God. In other words, if you're in the flesh, you can think of this in one of two ways, that you're simply a non-born-again person. You know, good work you do is ever going to please God because it is a filthy rag. It is impossible for you to do that. And you can also think of it as if I am acting outside of God's will in any way. In other words, I'm doing this on my own with my own power, my own motives, whatever that may be. I cannot please God with that. But who is at the center here? Who's in control? It's you. It's you. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Now I, Paul, myself am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold towards you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some, who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So we walk in the flesh. We do not respond with the flesh. In other words, with our mind, our will, our emotions, any of that kind of stuff. We don't, we don't go in that way. We stick with what we know. The weapons that we use are not carnal. They're mighty in God. That's the key. It's not your ability. It's not your knowledge. It's based in something greater than you. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're mighty in God. And what do they do? They pull down strongholds. They cast down arguments. And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, who he is, what he does, who we are in him. And we bring every thought into captivity, the obedience of Christ. How are we able to do this? Because God has afforded us to do this. Does that mean it's automatic? No. It's our responsibility. We talked about this and how the enemy moves in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 11. It says he put on the whole armor of God that may be able to stand against the wiles of de- the devil. This is Paul talking. To put it on, the whole armor. Why? The methods of which the enemy attacks. It always starts in your mind. He's not standing at the top of the stairs getting ready to push you. That's not normal. Guys, that's not normally what happens. What he does is he tries to give you bad ideas. Say things like, God, I know this is what you said, but let me tell you what you meant. And whether you ever use those words or not, you have done it and have continued to do it in one way or another by the justification of any bad idea or behavior that you have had. Because what you truly believe is, is laid out for the world by what you do. Why do you think we talk about water baptism? What is it? Does it make you saved? No. But it is now an entering in, the declaration of the covenant you made to the world. I am showing the world that I died with Christ, and just like he, I am risen with him. It's saying something. By taking that action, you are making a declaration to the world of the covenant that you have entered into in this new covenant because of the result of what Jesus has done. So what you do truly says what you believe. So if you believe that God heals today, then you don't fear sickness. If you believe God is your provider, you don't fear economic downfalls. If you believe that God has provided for you eternal life with Him, and that no matter what happens, nothing can separate you from that, you won't fear death. But if you constantly move around or say things or act in fear of sickness or act in fear of what the economy is going to do or act in fear of death in any way, you're truly displaying what you really believe. Whose responsibility is that? Sure. See, it's easy to say words. We say words all the time. 
We say things that don't make sense. That is why, like, with this foundation class, part of what we're talking about is just having the foundation of being able to respond to something and understand why we believe what we believe. Because we use words, and we never think about what that means. I mean, literally, I had somebody say this to me years ago, and, and this isn't the terminology I would suggest you use with an unbeliever that's never heard anything about God or anything like that, and say something to the extent that, you, you know, you need to be washed in the blood. Good way to scare them off. It'll be next Thursday, right? But I'd heard somebody say this, and I'm like, do you know what that means? And they literally had no idea. All they were doing was regurgitating something that they had heard in church. It wasn't an untrue statement, but they didn't know the meaning behind it. So again, when we talk about this stuff, we're talking about how the enemy moves and whose responsibility it is. Now, it is only your responsibility if... God has given you the ability to do it, okay? So when he says go into all the world and preach the gospel, was that a mandate? It was. Does that mean you have the ability? It must. Because he didn't say go jump off the building, flap your arms, and try to fly. When he looked at Peter and uh, walking on the water and Peter said, well, call me too. He said, all right, come on. He didn't say that and be like, watch this. It's going to be hilarious. No, he walked out on the water. He would have told him something he wasn't capable of doing. God did not, and Jesus did not, in these circumstances we're talking about, give any mandate, any directive, any commandment that we don't have the ability to follow through. So stop blaming your problems on somebody else, on the enemy, on how you were brought up. All of that is irrelevant. You can live there if you want. But you are expected to come above all of that. Now, why is that? Well, this is where we go. Matthew chapter 28. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, here's the thing. How much authority was given to him? All of it. And so what does he immediately say? As a result of this... Go and make disciples. Fair enough. So is there any authority not given to Jesus? There was not. As we see in other places, there's nothing that is named in all of these other things. And he immediately says, because of this, you go. Teach them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Who is them? Those are the disciples that are being made. You teach them to observe them. That he commanded. Did he say that, go and teach them some of the things, go and teach them what you think I said? Did he say, listen, why don't you guys get together and get in a big circle and then read about what I said and then ask what that means to each one of them? That's not what he said. He said, teach them all things that I have commanded you. In other words, if you're going to stay steadfast in the faith, you need to know this. If there's an authority that has been given and it's your responsibility to act upon it, you kind of need to know that. It's important. And this is called discipleship. And we don't do it anymore. Because we do not take the time for people one-on-one. -on -one. We wait for them to come to church. Maybe they hear the gospel here. They can bow their head, close their eyes, raise their hand, and get saved. And that's great. You can also do the same thing in your living room. You can do it at dinner. You can bring people into your life and just show them how this works. Talk to them. 
But we don't do that. We basically made it corporate in a sense. So how does this apply to our life? It goes back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. You see, it's that new creation part that changes everything. It's not the old you that has that authority. It's the new you. It's the one that's entered into covenant relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as a result of what Jesus did on the cross, being our Passover lamb, and has now given us this authority that all the old stuff is completely gone. It's dead. It no longer lives. You were risen with Christ and seated at the right hand of the Father with Christ. We are his body, the church. So because of that, all of these things now apply to us. But we've got to get something here, and this is the part. We seem to forget the authority that Jesus had on this earth, and with that, the authority that he has given to us. Now, I know this is maybe a little bit different, but we have to understand something. You see, my friend, as I was talking about, walked into that situation, finding out shortly before it, you know, he was getting ready to go there, he was very confident. He wasn't concerned at all. When they rolled Victor in in a wheelbarrow, you knew what was going on immediately. Were you intimidated in any way? No, because you know the authority you have. There's a confidence that comes with this. You ever got pulled over? Am I the only one? Thank you. And was the cop ever kind of rude? And didn't care why you were speeding? And didn't want to hear your story? Oh, but you don't understand. I got to get to my kid's birthday party. Yeah, I don't care. You know what speed limit is? I got pulled over once for running a stop sign. I didn't even see, okay? So they should have made it bigger. <laughs> After I'd been speeding in a, in a, a zone that I didn't know they changed the speed limit in, so not my fault. And he pulls me over, and he says, do you know why I stopped you? I'm like, you're bored? Apparently that was not the right answer. He said, how fast were you going back there? I'm like, I don't know, but I bet you know. He's like, well, I can tell you, but I'm going to write you a ticket if I do. I'm like, we don't need to know. <laughs> he cited me for the stop sign. I'm like, what stop sign? He's like, there's a stop sign back there. I didn't see it. Can you believe this? He didn't care. I had to pay that ticket. Now, why did he not care about my story? Because it doesn't matter to him. I broke the law. There was an authority that goes with that. He's not interested in my sob story of why I didn't deserve that ticket. His authority is implied. I had to take it. I was wrong, although I still question whether that stop sign was there, but that doesn't matter. You see, the authority of the believer is given to us by Christ with an expectation that we will walk in it, use it every single day, and not intimidated by anything. Was Jesus intimidated? No. Let's look at this for a minute. Mark chapter 1. There's something that we often dismiss, because when we think about Jesus, we think about this great and powerful man who lived on this earth. He, he is the son of God. He died. He overcame death. He healed people, cast out demons. We kind of like take that for granted. But if you could go back at the time of Christ and just be there, not knowing what we know, like we can retrospectively go back and look at this and we're looking from beginning to end and seeing the whole thing, but it's playing out in front of us. We don't know what's going to happen next. We don't know what he's going to say next. Like put yourself in that situation. And then read scripture. Mark chapter 1 verse 21. Then they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them 
as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now, that's interesting because understand something. The scribes were the guys, they were literally scribes. They would write down, copy scripture, but they were an authority figure inside of, we'll call it the church. That's not really what it was in the way we think of it, but let's just use that terminology. And they would often teach and they would get up and they would read from the scrolls and they would read whatever, you know, part was for that day and they had different rituals they went through. They went to the, the synagogue multiple times a week on the Sabbath was one of them and they taught all the time. Who had authority there? The scribes did. The leaders had the authority. But then Jesus got there. And he began to teach. And they were astonished. Like, that's a powerful word. It's a very big word. They're blown away by his teaching because he taught as one having authority. See, there was such a differentiation between how he taught. They're probably teaching the same thing. But his approach versus that of the scribes, it was something different. It was, it was almost like the scribes would teach it as one who is familiar with the words, could maybe recite the words to you. But they weren't in them. They, what they meant wasn't in them. But Jesus steps up and he teaches as if he's like, Y'all, I wrote this, like, it's my book. Now there was a man, verse 23, in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, saying, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. He's deliberately, he, I'm, you know, many of them, whatever, crying out, saying, you are the Holy One, the set-apart one, the anointed one, the Son of God calling him Messiah. What is Jesus' response? He rebuked him. Be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Now watch their response to this. They were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. Now think, put yourself in their shoes for a moment. Like Jesus casting out a demon. Like, man, that's what he does. No big deal. But they showed up on the Sabbath expecting the scribes to just get up and do what they do. And Jesus taught from a position of authority. And then when the enemy presented himself and did not lie, right? Is he the Holy One of God? He absolutely is. Jesus rebukes him. Be quiet and come out of him. These people were shocked. What new doctrine is this? In other words, this is something we haven't seen before. See, they don't realize he's Messiah. They're like, oh, it's Jesus. Yeah, that's what he does. No. They're like, well, what is, what, what is this? What is happening? Something was so different in what he taught and what he did that it completely caught them off guard. It says, with authority, he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Where did that authority come from? It came from the Father. Who did he give that authority to? His disciples. Let's look at another one. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. In him, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh 
by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So now you can see the difference here. That circumcision is talking about this covenant experience that you put off the body of sins in the flesh, you're buried with him in baptism, you're raised with him through faith in the working of God. This is talking about the salvation experience, if you will. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. Now let's stop for a minute. You were dead in your trespasses. He has made you alive. We get that. This next part, I've explained it before, but let me explain it again. The handwriting of requirements against us is not the old law. Please do not misunderstand it. When it talks about nailing that to the cross, when he said to telestai, which means it is finished, it is talking about that when somebody had committed a crime, there would be a handwriting of requirements that was given to them, and they would have to fulfill the requirements on them. They would be in jail or whatever the case may be. At the end of their term, their sentence, whatever it was, they would write on there to tell us that, meaning it is completed, it is fulfilled. And they would carry that with them because if anybody accused them again and say, wait a minute, did you not X, Y, Z, they could show this and say, no, I have paid for my crime. You guys see that? That's what's going on here. What did he say? You, verse 13, you being dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. So how many of them? Is there any left? No. Does it matter what you did, how bad you were? When you did it, what if it was like just yesterday? Does it matter? No. He wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which is contrary to us, and taken out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So in other words, a public display that all your trespasses, all your crimes, all your sins, all your deserving of death has now been fulfilled. When we sing that today, death could not hold you. Why? He had done nothing wrong. Death had no right to him. But verse 15, we often, again, we, we just discount it. We don't think about it. He disarmed the principalities and powers, and he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. What is the it? The cross. When did he do it? It was there. He hung it up. Well, what is this disarming principalities and powers? He made a public spectacle of them. You see, this is a battle talk. When a nation would invade another nation and they would win in the battle, they would take all the leaders of that and they would parade them in front of everybody. Oftentimes in the nude, so it would be a parade you probably want to avoid. There's no candy being thrown out, okay? And it was showing that there's a new king in town. They no longer have power. Whatever decree that they had made is now null and void because there's a new king. And this new king has all the power and all the authority. And what he says matters. This is what's going on. The principalities and the powers, and as we've seen from other places, these are the demonic realm, if you will, these spiritual forces in high places and all that. He disarmed them and he made a public spectacle of them. So let me ask you this. If that is true, what power do they have in your life? The answer is none. What authority do they have in your life? The answer is none. Unless, while that lion's roaring around, you don't stay steadfast in the faith. You don't resist him. 
You guys see this? What can they do to you? The answer is nothing you don't allow. Why? It's all because of what Jesus did. It's time to stick with what he said and quit trying to tell him what he meant. Let's look at another one. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, <clears throat> verse 6. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, who do you think he's talking about here? The rulers of this age. Is he talking about the people that were in charge? No. Because you think about this. What changed for your Pharisee, for your Sadducee, any of those guys that were in charge of the Sanhedrin, at the moment that Jesus was crucified? The answer is nothing. They went about as normal. They continued to make sacrifices for many years in the temple. Nothing changed. The Spirit of God, the, the uh, Shekinah glory had been lifted out of the temple years and years and years before this. But they continued on with their rituals. Nothing had changed outside of there was a movement of the followers of the way, which started small, and it kind of discounted and grew into what we have today. So it's not talking about those people. Who was the rulers of the age? It's talking about the spiritual forces. And what is he talking about? We speak the wisdom of God. Not the wisdom of man. Not the wisdom of this age. Not the wisdom of them. The wisdom of God. In other words, what he says, what he thinks, goes. Because if they had known, they would not have crucified him. If the enemy had realized what killing Jesus would have done, do you think he would have done it? Probably not. I mean, we'd never know. Probably not. I mean, again, why does that matter? It's what Jesus has done. Look at this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. It's from the Moffat translation. I want to show you this because this explains it. We discuss wisdom with those who are mature, only it is not the wisdom of this world or of the dethroned powers who rule this world. It is the mysterious wisdom of God that we discuss, that hidden wisdom which God decreed from all eternity for our glory. None of the powers of this world understands that if they had, they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. What is it? The dethroned powers of this rule. I mean, who are we talking about? The guys that rule this world. We're going back to the whole people that he disarmed publicly. He's taken all authority of them. He's talking about how they are what? Dethroned. He made a public spectacle of them. Then why are we fearful? Why are we fearful of the things of this world? We shouldn't be. Yet we are. Because we are thinking carnally. Continued time and time again. Look at this one. Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of the flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. That through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now think about this. Who had the power of death? According to this, it was the devil. And uh, who destroyed that? Jesus did. So who has the power of death now? You see, this isn't talking about physical death. Because he said he released those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. 
In other words, if you live in fear of death your entire life, it will keep you from doing things, anything. If you have a fear of flying, you probably aren't signing up for airline miles on your credit card, right? I mean, we think about this. He, through his death, destroyed him who had the power of death. Because all had sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. What is the result of sin? Death entered because of sin. Therefore, he had a right to that. But he took the keys of death. Should we fear death? No. Do we fear death? Yes. Why? I mean, you're hearing about this deconstruction movement. And you're hearing about these people who say, you know what, I just, I'm so glad I've woken up. Because I don't want to waste my life. Which is pretty powerful thing to say considering you're just a happy accident of a cosmic belch that you came from nothing which implies that you have purpose to your life which you wouldn't but once you die do you realize you've wasted your life do you have any regrets no do you care what you had for dinner the night before the day after you die no you don't care you don't care about any of that because you're dead so why do we fear death should we no but we do look at philippians chapter 2 verse 5 let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. So this is a good thing. Let this, is being very specific. Who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So therefore, as a result of all of this, God also has highly exalted him, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, and of those of earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So, as a result of Jesus coming down on this earth as a man, making himself in the appearance of a man, the likeness of men, a bondservant of no reputation, as a result of that, God, the Father, highly exalted him and gave him the name above every name. You know what the good part of that is? Is that is all-encompassing. Because everything is named. So is there anything that is above him? As a result of that, then is there anything above us? The answer is no. Now again, don't misunderstand me. Don't get into some weird ditch and you're just, I don't know, casting demon out of stoplights or stuff. I mean... You catching every red light in the city is not a result of the work of the devil. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 37. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now let's stop. We often hear... We are more than conquerors. We leave out the part through Him. We're nothing without Him. We are His body. As a result of what He did, that He loved us, we are more than conquerors. And then He goes on to say that neither death nor life, okay, it's one or the other. There's never a time you're in between. You're either alive or you're dead. Angels, principalities, or powers, we're talking about spiritual things things present or things to come, so things that are going on now or that are going to happen, 
height nor depth or any other created thing. Is there anything left out in this list? No, because all things are created. There's nothing left out. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. So then why, again, do we fear anything? Why do we go into condemnation when we miss it? Nothing can separate us, and yet we don't believe it. Because our actions truly dictate what we believe. How we respond is truly an indicator of what our belief system is. Let's look at another one. John chapter 8. We're almost done. John chapter 8, verse 28. Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And He who sent me is that is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please Him. And as He spoke those words, many believed in Him. And Jesus said to those Jews who believed in Him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now let's go back. He's having a conversation, many times with the Pharisees. He says, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know. You'll know. And did they know? Absolutely. They lifted him up, it went dark. The veil was torn. Something was up. Three days later, he's back. They bribed the guards. Did they know? Yes. Could they let go of their previously held belief system? No. But as he's saying this, many believed in him. Now here's the thing. Again, where's the point where he did the altar call? As he's delivering these words. So you've got to understand something. We have things that we do that aren't necessarily scriptural. They're not unscriptural. But things that we do. That's not what makes, there is no sinner's prayer. Their belief in him. They put their faith, hope, and trust in him. And he looked at those Jews who believed him. It says, if you abide in my word, in other words, the things that he said and the things that he believed, you are my disciples. That means if you don't, are you his disciple? No. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Why does the truth make you free? In this case, when you realize what Jesus has done, how that results for you, and the authority you walk in that we don't fear death, we don't fear sickness, we don't fear economy, we don't fear anything. Is that freeing? Absolutely, it's free. The truth will make you free. The knowing and understanding, accepting what he said is true. Faith comes by hearing and accepting what you hear as true. When you fully believe something, fully believe it, your actions will match your words. Would we agree with this statement? In the church world today, we have a lot of words with contrary actions. Absolutely. I mean, if you believe that God heals through the laying on of hands, then why are we not laying on of hands? You believe that. You don't believe it, it makes sense. If you were here in the foundations class, I showed you that clip with, uh, oh my goodness, what's his name? Penn, Penn Gillette, magician, atheist. It's this thing, I've shown it before, where he was, did a show, he's an atheist, devout atheist. And a man just went up and just said nice things about the show and all that, handed him a Gideon Bible with some phone numbers in it to get a hold of him. And he was so blown away because he said, if you truly believe that I am going to hell or anybody else is going in hell, then why would you not proselytize? Why would you not share that? And he uses this example. If I'm standing there and a bus is bearing down at you 
and you're refusing to listen, there's a point that will come where I will tackle you and get you out of the way of the oncoming bus. If you believe that, then how much do you have to hate somebody to not tell them? If you believe that there is a person who is not going to be spending eternity with God, why would you not tell them? You see, what you really believe is shown through what you do. Now let's read Romans 8 again. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. The carnal mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God. So those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You see, we have a church today that is in the flesh. Because we are carnally minded. We have all these things to try to fill seats, all these things to try to attract people, all these things to get people in. Their hearts are in the right place, but they're not thinking spiritually. We have a, 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 a spirit-filled church who says, oh, I believe in healing, but they don't pray for the sick. And when I say that, I don't mean altar calls. I mean go and pray for people who are sick. And James talks about call for the elders of the church. And the prayer of faith will make you whole. That doesn't happen. People don't do that anymore. We don't gather together. And when we believe these things, it is dictated in what we do, no matter what it is. When you accept your position with Christ, that in Him you are seated at the right hand of the Father, and the authority that He has is given to you to go into all the world and to make disciples. And with that comes responsibilities and uh, things that He's given and all the tools necessary to do it. That there's nothing the enemy can bring against you that can overcome you that you didn't allow. When you recognize that, you start walking a little different. You start acting a little different. You start talking a little different. As I said, my friend in that situation, he wasn't afraid. He didn't care. Jim wasn't afraid. He didn't care. The enemy wasn't going to disrupt this meeting, and that man wasn't leaving in the wheelbarrow he came in in. I don't think I've ever said that about a church service. I would have loved to have been there for that. I mean, there are things that I, I, I have been asked to go into situations, and they're like, we're going to go burn some sage. I'm like, wow, your house is going to stink. You know, they're talking about there's stuff going on in there. I don't care. It doesn't faze me. Because I know the authority that I have been given. And I walk in that. So I'm not fearful of these things. We've got to start thinking different. We've got to get back to being spiritually minded. Back to the basics of what Scripture says. If God has said it, then we've just simply got to believe it and stop questioning everything He said. You guys get this? Like, it's so crucial. Because we talk about the power of God and why the church is unidentifiable, and why people are deconstructing all of this. We have, we use a lot of words, but our actions don't match. I remember, okay, mind you, my parents, when I was growing up, told me that smoking was bad for you. Do you know what my parents did? They both smoked. They literally would be like, now listen, son, you shouldn't do this. It's terrible for you. It's not healthy. It's not right. You don't need to do that. You know what I did? I did that. Their actions didn't speak their word or match their words. Why do you think? Your children, most of the time, not always, most of the time, are a reflection of you. And I hate to say that because I know who my children are. But they're a reflection of you. They're a reflection of what you say and what you do and what you've instilled into them. Not always. There's always circumstances. But a lot of times they are. And the people you associate with 
should be a reflection of you and not the other way around. You see, we've got to get out of this carnal mindset. We've got to get to the spiritual mindset. We've got to get back to the basics. Imagine if the American church today was around at the time when Peter stood up and said, this is not what you suppose. What do you think would have happened? We'd had all sorts of giveaways, all sorts of trying to draw people in. That's not what they did. They did, Jesus said, go in the world, make disciples. Okay, I guess we'll just go do that. What a concept. Anyway, guys, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true, Lord. We thank you that it is what guides us. And we stand on it wholly, succinctly, Lord. And I thank you that we're growing in our understanding of who you are. And Father, we repent of the areas of which that we have just not stayed true. That we've not stood on your word. That we've not stayed confident in who you've made us to be, Lord. That we're just walking around with maybe our head down, Lord. Not doing what you have called us to do. To be your example. To be your hands and feet. To be disciple makers, Lord. But we've simply coasted through life, hoping somebody else will pick up the slack. And maybe through osmosis, by our actions, that somebody might see something or hear something I said and maybe give their life to you, Lord. Maybe we become deliberate in our actions. Lord, open up doors to us that we can make this a part of our life of what we do and who we are. We give you glory. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.